they can get a cheerleader a lot cheaper than me. All I'm looking for in deposition of the defendant is what it is I want to start my case with. It isn't about your war with that lawyer. It's about your war with injustice and your war for justice. And I'd say don't be worried about how you can maximize your fee in any one given deal. Think about your reputation long term. This is Wisdom on Trial, impacting your life and law practice. Welcome back. I hope you have enjoyed the podcast. I really have appreciated all of the feedback and the constructive ideas. It's very helpful, so thank you. Today, I had a good time interviewing Judge Kevin Weiss, who is a circuit court judge in the Ninth Circuit and has been a judge since 2015. Before that, Judge Weiss was a very well-respected trial an appellate attorney uh, throughout Florida, had a law practice that was thriving and literally left a successful business and practice to uh, be a public servant. And he shares a little bit about that story. Um, I think you'll enjoy that. This was a particularly fun uh, interview for me because I had sent an email around to uh, a bunch of lawyers and just said, what questions might you have for Judge Weiss? And he, he answered all of them. And at the end of the day, I think you'll see uh, what uh, I found, which is Judge Weiss is, is loaded with wisdom, and it's very portable and practical and, and relevant to your life and mine. I hope you enjoy it. Thanks. All right. I am uh, excited this afternoon to be sitting down with uh, Judge Kevin Weiss in the Orange County Courthouse, 11th floor in his chambers, and thank you for spending some time with me. My pleasure. Happy to have you here. Yes. Well, I uh, I enjoyed talking to both your JA and your courtroom deputy before uh, you got here, so I got their perspective on what it's like to work with you. I did not know about that. I'll have to talk to them about that. <laughs> it was random. It was a random moment, but what, just so you know what they see is uh, they talk about your humanity and the way that you treat uh, every single person with respect, no matter uh, race, gender, anything, uh, sexual preference, whatever, that you treat every single person with respect, and they they really uh, appreciate working with you a lot. Well, that's good to hear. It's amazing how much our courtroom staff, including our clerks, the deputy, and the judicial assistant, is a part of the process, and they're really our eyes and the ear, eyes and ears as to every case and litigant. And um, they also probably have the best insight on us because not only do they get to see us in hearings and in trial, but they also get to hear what we have to say when people walk out of the room and close the door. Yes, because we're all human. They they honored you. There was there's no good dirt or <laughs> well, anything good. <laughs> that I gathered. So one of the things when I think about you uh, and I remember your practice uh, before you became a judge, you your career seemed from the outside looking in uh, like you were in fifth gear with nothing but smooth sailing. How do you come to sell your practice, sell your building, close it down and become a, a circuit judge? Well, that's a long story, but um, if I had to uh, summarize it, I'd say that I had a significant life event occur, which was um, the uh, unexpected sudden death of my father, who I was very close with. My dad and I were best friends, and dad, after he retired, he was a retired physician, uh, worked in my building. So we used to have a lot of fun together. Um, and worked on some cases together. He also worked a lot of uh, medical legal type cases. Um, but um, what had happened is uh, after going through that experience, I was kind of in a funk for a while, and I just started to reevaluate life and you know what our purpose is here. And and you know when you see somebody who is um, you know not feeling well and then eventually um, is subject to mortality. Who, you know, you always think your dad is the superhero yes. and nothing's ever going to happen. Yes, at least you hope that. Right. And, um, you know, you start to reevaluate, well, what's important in life? And then, you know, this was also right around the recession, you know, kind of, and, and dad had, was heavily invested much of his uh, assets for retirement. 
and it, you know, he was very stressed out over it. And I was working with him on it um, because I also fancy myself as being somebody who follows the markets. But um, you realize that in the end, none of us take it with us. Yeah. And um, and I started thinking about what I really wanted to do the rest of my life, and what type of impact I wanted to make here. And when I kept thinking about the success that I've had in my practice, part of the success, of course, is helping people. Another part is having a business where it's a good place to work for employees. And my attorneys who worked with me, like they were like my best friends. We all had a great thing going. But then it was also so much about money. And there's the business of law and there's the practice of law. And as the manager of the firm and the owner of the firm, I spent over 50% of my day managing the firm. And now as much as I like the business aspect of it, I got to the point where I just want to practice law. And so I thought about either joining a firm or do something different, like being a judge. And one of my closest friends, Judge Don Myers, um, had become a judge before me, and he was one of my mentors for um, ever since I got out of law school. And um, he would tell me about how fascinating of an experience it is for him and how fulfilling it was for him. So I called everybody upstairs to my office. Uh, I think at the time we had four lawyers. We were a total of about 15 people in my firm. And I said, I have good news and bad news. I said, the bad news is I'm closing the firm. <laughs> and the good news is I have jobs for everybody. Um, and fortunately, um, one of the local, very successful uh, attorneys in town, Mr. Nation, Mark Nation, um, and I had negotiated a uh, deal where um, he had offered all of my staff, as well as my attorneys, the opportunity to continue forward in the type of work we were doing. And so it would have been very difficult for me to do what I'm doing without, you know, someone like Mark stepping up. And in addition to, you know, um, entrusting um, my staff to him, you know, it also had to make sense, you know, financially. which in looking back now, it doesn't make any sense whatsoever financially because I'm a state employee on a very set salary. What has that been uh, like? I mean, like I'm trying to visualize for a private attorney who owns a law firm um, going one day from, we'll call it not a set income to, you know, the next year shifting where you're in essence a state salaried employee. It sounds hard. It's very hard, but we don't do it for the money, and that's the difference. When I was appointed to the JNC, the Judicial Nomination Commission, by the governor, I'd sat on that, I think, for a couple of years, and we'd get, we'd get all kinds of applications, primarily for people who were looking for a six-figure raise. <laughs> and, you know, then you'd get a few resumes of people who were making significant money, doing a good job as private attorneys or you know, even public attorneys where they've moved up within the state or the PD's office or in other types of ventures. Um, And one of the things that you consider is, you know, is this person looking for a raise or, you know, have they had their own personal success as an attorney such that they're now ready to give back to the community? Because you want people to do it for the right reasons. You want your judges to be those who have been out there Um, know what it's like to run a business, know what it's like to practice law, to try a case, to deal with good counsel, to deal with difficult counsel, and to bring that experience into the courtroom such that, um, um, you know, it benefits the entire process, both the litigants as well as the parties, um, you know, based on the experience we've had. But one of the biggest problems you have is that, you know, I think when I first started, the salary was $146,000 a year. I think we got a raise recently um, to one hundred and sixty. Um, and although, you know, I appreciate that and I try to be humble about because I know a lot of people don't make that kind of money as a civil trial lawyer. If you're successful, that's what you're making in about three months of time. So it's a significant salary cut. It's a significant lifestyle change. Has your wife forgiven you? (laughs) Um, She has. She really is an amazing woman where she's always said that if it takes selling the house and living in a, you know, a, a small house in, you know, the middle of some place where, you know, we're not living in Winter Park or otherwise, if we have to, um, 
make it work, we will. The key to life is to be happy and to feel like that you've got some kind of purpose. And for me, that's really what I found was missing was, you know, yes, I'm doing well for my clients. Um, and there was a case every once in a while you think about where you've changed somebody's life. And, and that's huge. That's a big deal for me. Um, but I also wanted to give back to the system. I think we have the best system in the world. I really do. And, um, and everybody always says, um, you know, when they complain about judges or they complain about the system. So what's the answer? Well, go do something about it. It's like somebody who complains about the, you know, a politician, but they don't vote. So I kind of put my money where my mouth was. And I said, you know what, I'm going to go be part of the system. And fortunately, um, I did well enough such that I'm going to take this reduction in compensation. Um, and, uh, and then I put my name out there, and I couldn't get appointed because I was a member of the JNC. So the rule is you have to wait, I think, five years. Okay. Um, so be like insider, insider trading. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so I, um, what I did is uh, I took a look at the list of who was retiring, and Judge Mihawk was retiring. It was an open seat. I went and met with him and told him, um, you know, made sure he was retiring, of course. And then I put my name in for that seat. Someone jumped in at the last minute to run against me. I ran a campaign. I won. And Beat him um, like a dog. <laughs> well, you know, I try again. I, I tried I mean, to. I mean that in a more respectful judiciary yeah, kind of it, way. Yeah, <laughs> like a boss. Like a is dog, that what they say? Like a dog. <laughs> um, well, you know, we all have to work together in the community. I'm glad that our campaign was very professional. Um, my campaign manager ensured that I kept it professional um, because as trial lawyers, you know, we want to bring in the evidence and show why our case is better than their case. Yes. And there was a lot of evidence out there, <laughs> but I tried to be as professional and humble as possible. And um, and I think that is to everybody's benefit as a, measure, as a member of the judiciary that we keep it at a certain level of professionalism. And then also I see that gentleman around every once in a while, the courthouse, we shake hands, we see how you're doing. Nice. And I'm so glad that, you know, the way that campaign went was in a, you know, as professional as it could be. Yes. Well, tell me, has it been what you hoped it would be like in terms of your personal peace and satisfaction and all of the things you were looking for no it wasn't all of the things i was looking for um but a significant part of this job was part of what i was looking for so do i feel like i make a difference every day in controlling the process in helping people to get justice absolutely i think the judges are such an integral part of making this justice system of ours work and um, it takes somebody who has had experience of what we're all trying to not only accomplish, but what we're all trying to avoid, which is the lack of professionalism in the courtroom. Um, it doesn't have to be a battle every single hearing, and it doesn't have to be a nasty process. You know, you can help these people and talk to them and also enforce the rules. You know, one of my biggest pet peeves were judges who refused to enforce the rules. And I feel like rules are critical in, to make our process run. It becomes chaos. If you can't count on the judge to enforce the rules, it's anarchy. I completely agree. Yeah. Um, I want to go back to that, but I, I can't leave it. So what didn't you find that you were hoping to find when you became a judge? So one of my challenges as a private lawyer is I was a workaholic. I, um, I can't do anything half-assed. It's um, not that we should you know, want to do that. But I, um, as a private lawyer, I never stopped, you know, maybe I would stop for Friday night through Saturday, and then I'd be in the office again on Sunday. I can tell you several times when over holidays, I was in the office, um, I'd put the kids to bed or help put the kids to bed. And my wife definitely took the lead on that. And then I'd go back upstairs and write a brief. So I, I was hoping that with this type of a position, I would be able to work hard, but then I'd be able to um, not think about it all the time um, and that hasn't give some peace of mind. I continue to think about my cases yes. all the time. And there are now if I go on vacation, that's the biggest difference in this job. The nice thing is when you're on vacation, you're on vacation. 
and, and that has been a real benefit. And I've gone overseas with my kids, and I didn't think much about anything. Um, that That is the difference when you go on vacation. But on the weekends and at night, I'm always thinking about rulings that I did, did I, you know, and pondering certain rulings. Um, um, I've changed three or four times a ruling where I'll start to write the order. And in the middle of it, as I'm, you know, going through the file, I'll be like, wait, wait, I, you know, they never made that point. Let me look at this deposition and I'll go through the deposition and I'll, uh, and I'll find where, you know, I, I need to rewrite this order when some of my colleagues will look at me like, what are you doing? Yes. <laughs> you know, you need to move on and get to your next case. But that's just not the way that I'm wired. So um, I guess w- what I was hoping was that I would be able to um, be like Fred Flintstone at five o'clock, the whistle goes out and I go down the dinosaur and, you know, I go home to Wilma and then it's, it's you know, I don't think about work <laughs> until Mr. <laughs> Mr. Slate sees me again. But it's not like that with me. And I was hoping that it would be a little bit more, um, you know, I'd find more peace of mind like that. But it's just the way I am wired, I think. Is it wrong that I hope every judge experiences that pain? Because in my mind, what I like about that is you're not willing to sacrifice the right ruling because it'll be easier on you personally and you won't have to read that extra depot. You won't have to think about it again and you won't have to question the foundation of your reasoning. I, I mean, it's that's what we want. So I kind of want that pain for, for the judge. I, 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 I get it. I mean, that's what I wanted from you know, the judges I appeared before of when I was a litigant and sometimes it's so frustrating because you knew that they for example, didn't read your motion or brief before you walked into that big hearing. And, um, you know, at least I try to be as as open as possible and say, well, you just delivered the notebooks to me last night. So let me tell you straight up, I yes. haven't read everything you've provided to me. And oftentimes I will not make a decision at the hearing, even though it's so much easier to just make a decision and move on. Um, I'll often say, okay, I'll get you an order. Let me look through the material. And I will. Um, but I can tell you that there are some that might say, um, you know, A, you should make a ruling and get on with it. And B, you're just, you're still young. But I can tell you that there are a great group of judges here at the courthouse. And um, I would say, if you'd have to ask me, like, what was one of the biggest surprises about this job, it is my colleagues. Um, We're kind of like a big law firm here. And there's certain judges, I mean, you don't really hear from much or you don't see very much. I mean, I can tell you there's probably two judges in the courthouse I've maybe seen once in five years. Not that they're not here. We're just in different divisions and different worlds. They don't hang out and go to lunch or whatever. Um, But for the most part, we are here for each other. And um, I have been so happy with most of my colleagues here and pleasantly surprised at their desire to do the right thing. Um, And I can tell you there's a lot of young bucks who've and when I say young bucks, I mean, you know, um, you know, I think the age of the old gray haired, you know, mean looking judge with his gavel sitting on the big bench. I mean, those days are coming to an end. We're very different around here, I think. Um, we're a different generation, I think. You know, we're looking at things in a much different perspective, doing more creative things, uh, starting more creative courts. I mean, we have drug court, we have veterans court, we have mental health court. Um, they have a baby court now um, for, um, you know, children. I mean, you know, these specialized courts, I think, you know, that comes from thinking out of the box. And a lot of, you know, amazing things that Judge Lawton, our chief judge, and um, Judge Perry, you know, were able to kind of instill here in, in the ninth. And and they're very open to us with our ideas about if we come up with something interesting that we see for like, and they're called problem-solving courts. Um, I have an idea in my head of something I would like to do, but I'm just, I since I've gotten to Orange County, I was in Osceola for three years, I haven't had a, a minute to spare because I'm swamped. (laughs) Let let, let me ask you this. In terms of when you practice, you did uh, primarily civil trial. Insurance litigation, business litigation, personal injury litigation. And if I'm just thinking of the season where I kind of knew you, you know, in the latter part of your uh, career, it seemed like you managed litigation. You managed a law firm. You were doing litigation, but you also were doing appeals. Like you were developing a, 
a serious appellate reputation and you served as an expert witness on attorney's matters. The, the question I want to ask you is this. What are the things about being a judge that um, if you were to talk to the pre-judge Kevin Weiss and you could give him the inside scoop and skinny so that he could better understand judges, he could better understand how to interact and uh, effectively work with judges, what would you tell him? I think one of the biggest things that a lot of practitioners don't think about or don't fully appreciate is that, first of all, the diversity of issues that we're dealing with in one day in our courtrooms. So let me give you an example in Osceola County. So in Osceola County, I had civil division, probate division, guardianship division, um, and then I did, um, once every five weeks, I did initial appearances for Osceola County. So I would know in 24 hours all the people who were picked up on warrants and finding probable cause on new cases. Um, and then um, I also did Marchman Acts and Baker Acts. Okay. Can you imagine the amount of hearings that I had per day and the amount of issues that I would hear? No, I, would I, go I, for, I cannot imagine. Okay. It's incredible. Yes. It, it really is. And going into that division, I was very nervous because I had no experience in probate. I had no experience in guardianship. Um, I had a little bit of experience in substance abuse just based on friends and family. But um, the amount of issues we hear, we go from helping um, parents of autistic children, getting guardianships and dealing with you know, everything from schools to hospitals to medical decisions, petitions from medical centers where there's no one out there but they need to take someone off life support, and it comes to me. Um, we dealt with um, in uh, probate issues involving, you know, fights over families that don't get along anymore and mommy's crying, you know, the mom's crying in your courtroom because the siblings don't get along and they're all fighting over the money. I mean, there's so many emotional, deep issues we're dealing with. And then a civil case comes in where one person hasn't produced discovery to the other person because they didn't uh, email them first or something like that. So. To get back to your question, the perspective that they necessarily don't see is they're in there on a most simple motion to compel, and you're going before a judge who just dealt with all of the issues I told you about, and the judge may look at things such as, are you seriously bringing this to court? and bringing this before me, and why aren't you just giving them the discovery? Well, Judge, they didn't say, you know, you know, please, or they didn't, uh, you know, respond accordingly, you know, and they were two days late or something like that, when, meanwhile, I just signed a petition for someone's leg to be removed so he wouldn't get gangrene. That's the perspective that I think a lot of lawyers are missing of what goes on in our day as judges and why maybe what's so important to you and based on principle of someone being mean to you or rude to you or something like that, um, or not following a certain rule of procedure, we may not think it's as significant as it is in your head. I think that's what I would want other folks to know and what I want myself to know that I don't think I could know because you know it's really hard to know what a judge goes through during his or her day. And, how, how um, the permission to just use a brief profanity, but like, like permission granted. Okay. <laughs> how, how, how do lawyers be less of pricks to judges? Like, like, and I'm not talking about the extreme examples. To judges or to each other? Well, let's start with, with judges. Like what, what are the, the easiest things that uh, lawyers could begin doing to treat judges better and still advocate passionately for their clients. Okay, so my experience has been that I generally do not have a problem with disrespect to judges in the courtroom. Um, fortunately, um, that's not a problem I see quite often at all. In you know, in Osceola when I was there for three years and then in my second year here now in, uh, in Orange, um, it happens, and it actually just happened the other day. Um, very rarely does it happen, but when it does happen, I think as judges, we are responsible to do something about it. 
And if anything, we're responsible not only to help the person who's doing it, because I bet you their client or or managing partner would never want them to have that kind of a reputation yes. and generally don't know about it. Um, but secondly, to help them, because they may not know that that's the perspective that we as the judges are, are finding, that they're being overly aggressive and disrespectful to the court. So I think it's important that we do something about it. And in that particular case, I documented, and I am sending it to the professionalism committee. Um, but that's the exception. Yeah. rather than the rule. So it's very rare that I don't have control of my courtroom. That's the, you know, if there's one thing that I pride myself is to make sure that the courtroom is um, a even playing field where people respect each other, um, both in front of me, where if they're talking to each other rather than the court, I remind them to speak to the court. If they show an attitude with me, I may ask them to tap their brakes. And sometimes, you know, they'll apologize and say, I'm sorry, Judge, I got worked up. And I say, it's okay. We're all human here. Take a deep breath. And there's a couple of times I think where I've said that to me. Actually, <laughs> I don't know. It's possible. Which, which, <laughs> which is okay. And there's, it's right. It's helpful because it recalibrates someone who's passionate about something and can lose their mind for a second to get a quick recalibration. So yeah, I try to understand that everybody's human and we all have reactions and we all have, you know, we all, most of us are like three or four on a scale of one to 10 in terms of, you know, stress and anxiety. And sometimes we go from a three to an eight. And if that's the case and you need a break, I think it's okay to say, judge, is it possible we can take a five minute break? Absolutely. That's great right there. So you're saying you're saying if you're in a moment in a hearing, and your uh, your stress, your anxiety, your you're not thinking clearly because of something, it's okay to say, Judge, can I have a pause for a minute? Uh, I think that's what we're supposed to do, and I think as the judge, oftentimes, and, and you asked, you know, one of the things, what's you know, why is it, you know, what do I like about being a judge rather than a lawyer? Is I don't have a stake in the income. I mean, in the income. Your I don't income have, does I don't, not have a stake right, in exactly. the outcome. <laughs> yeah, I think that was a Freudian slip. <laughs> I don't have a stake in the outcome. Yes. I mean, you know, I've had cases where the defense gets a verdict. I've had cases where the plaintiffs knock it out of the park. Sometimes I'm wrong with what I think is going to happen. Um, but the fact is, all I want is that people get their day in court and that justice um, prevails. And that's what I want. And one of the ch biggest challenges I have to do in you know, as a civil judge is foreclosure. And it's a very tough area to practice in because a lot of times, you know, people have to leave their homes. Bankruptcy's over and they need to pay, you know, they need to leave. And I try to do everything I can to be as respectful, understanding, but also conscientious that the plaintiff wants their property back. Yes. And I think that's the ultimate skill is getting someone who has to leave their house to say, thank you, judge and walk out without yelling and screaming and just, you know, cause it's not a happy process. I start my morning every day with that. So every day, usually in the mornings between 8.30 and 9.30, I do walk-ins and most of those, I would say 50% of them are foreclosure cases. I'm writing the governor right from here and saying we need a raise for every circuit judge. Yeah, thank Jeez. you. <laughs> so, so yeah, so a lot of it is just trying to be, uh, to have empathy for these people who are losing their houses who you know have fought for years for their houses and whether they paid their mortgage or not i mean that's a whole different issue there's a human side of these things we started talking about um how lawyers could could be less jerks with the court mm. i bet you see some horrendous things of how lawyers treat other lawyers i have yeah what i'd like to do is rather than focus on how much that sucks because it does suck and mm -hmm. we're all a well it's aware a life of shortener. It, but is helping a lawyer um, first of all, if you were to fix the problem and you were beginning by coaching and mentoring lawyers, what are some of the things you would tell them? I would, I think one of the best skills that a younger lawyer can have is the ability to separate himself or herself from the task at hand, which is to prevail on the day for your client to win the motion versus the human side, which is to show respect for the other party, to do it in a cordial manner, and not everything has to be a fight. So that's like, you know, your best lawyer um, will have the skill to be able to 
you know, go to court, fight hard for your client, be respectful, not interrupt each other, um, and then go to lunch with opposing counsel. And I pride myself with having had the ability to do that with a lot of um, the defense attorneys that I worked with. Um, and there were certain attorneys you just couldn't do that with. And in those particular cases, um, I got to the point where, <laughs> honestly, I would uh, I would not uh, handle those cases myself, but assign an associate to it because I well, called them life shorteners. So, so for <laughs> so, and I get that, yeah. and I and, and it's a wonderful luxury of yeah. having your own law firm. But for the associate who then gets assigned that case because the partner has looked at it and said, "I don't want to deal with that guy. Like it ain't worth it." I don't make enough money, and if I do make enough money, I don't want to. I don't care. Help the associate navigate. They're coming into uh, a dogfight with with someone who wants it to get muddy and ugly and messy. And you talk about muddy. Okay, so there's this expression where they say that, you know, if you jump in the mud with the pig, then you both get dirty, and, you know, no one looks good in front of the court or the judge or, you know, the jury. Jury, by the way, does not like to see people fight. They do not like that. They don't like to see sarcasm, and it does not help your client to fight with opposing counsel. Um, but having to, uh, to talk to, um, you said, an associate, um, here's what I'd say. Try to take the high road. Try to um, do everything you can to accommodate opposing counsel with extensions, within reason. Um, if the opposing counsel is sarcastic to you, try not to be sarcastic back, but be professional. You are a professional who has a special and unique responsibility in, um, in society, such as access to the courts. How about um, practically? So, How, so practically? Go leave, into the moment. Okay, it, paper trail. Leave a paper trail. Show that you're trying to get along, that you're trying to you know, get past the nastiness. And that's usually after you've hit heads with somebody. And it usually happens on the phone and someone hangs up on somebody else or whatever. Um, and then if the person doesn't write you back, Okay, and won't coordinate with you and otherwise says go pound sand. We have a process for that. And if you look at my rules at the end of it, it shows what you're supposed to do if you can't get a hearing from the other side because they won't communicate with you. Just certify to me that you've tried on this date, this date, this date, and the other side still won't coordinate a hearing with you or do whatever with you. Bring it to the court's attention. Set it for hearing. Show me that you've attempted to work it out. Yeah. Yeah, Let let, let, let me uh, go to, I asked some of the lawyers in our firm, what questions would you uh, love to ask Judge Weiss? I thought about opening it up to all the folks I know locally, but (laughs) then I'd have to sift through them and think them through. But let's just try to uh, shotgun some of these. What advice would you give to a young lawyer trying one of their first cases? Don't do it alone. Uh, If you're going to sit first chair, have somebody sit second chair with you to help you through the trial. Give you input, give you insight. Um, watch a few trials beforehand, and whether it be someone in your firm or someone else that you know is trying a case, make sure that you find out from either the judicial assistant or sometimes deputies will talk to you about what the judge likes and what he doesn't or she doesn't like. And um, because there's certain judges who, for example, have no problem with somebody drinking at the table. Um, other judges, wow. Um, I can tell you, I've been to lunch with a few of my colleagues where they'll come in and be like, I can't believe that lawyer took their jacket off. And I'm like sitting here thinking to myself, like, maybe they were hot. You know? <laughs> like, so find out the judge's uh, preferences. Um, but really, it's watching a few trials and then um, having somebody sit with you, even if it's not a member of your firm, someone who um, will um, be there for you for immediate questions, advice, things like that. And then um, the last thing is make sure you have an outline of your trial. A lot of people just don't do that anymore. People wait to do jury instructions at the end. I had a mentor a long time ago, and it wasn't Myers, it may have even been my brother, Jeffrey, who said one of the first things he does is he does his jury instructions because that tells you what you have to prove. And so I always find it amazing that people are like, well, we haven't done our jury instructions yet. But jury instructions can really be, you know, kind of what you're looking for in the end for, you know, the trial. So, um, you know, do an outline of your trial exactly, you know, what you're going to be asking for, what the law is and, you know, kind of like work your way backwards. Yes. 
what are some of the um, best ways a younger lawyer can earn credibility with a judge? Realize that certain hearings are not the war, but a battle. Make sure that they see the forest through the trees. But sometimes, um, you know, a motion to compel hearing, you may lose that, but you may, you know, win the trial. You have to be really careful on showing your emotions in the courtroom and um, showing the judge that, um, you know, you can accept a court's ruling. You're saying it's not endearing to see a, a lawyer act pissed off when they don't like the judge's ruling? I had an attorney from Miami who I wasn't done yet, and they got up and started marching out, and my deputy chased him down, <laughs> brought him back in here, and I said, I don't think I was done. And uh, um, he was just, his face was beat red, and I gave him, you know, I said, look, you're going to, you know, you're probably a young lawyer, and I, I knew at the time he was. And I said, you're going to have judges rule against you. You're going to have judges rule for you. You're not going to be happy with the decision. But there's a process for that. It's called a motion for a hearing and then possibly an appeal. And that's okay. That's part of our system. But if you show your disappointment like that, you know, there's going to be judges who may not be as nice as I am um, because I'm just going to ask you to please don't do that again. Um, but, yeah, it's your personality and how you conduct yourself in the courtroom. And then also if you're wrong. At some point, or the other party pulls out a case, and you think that, wow, that's a better case than what I had, just admit it. That's why you see in appellate opinions all the time. They'll say, you know, um, you know, we commend opposing counsel for raising this matter or conceding this matter, because we do. If It gives you so much more credibility if you say, you know what, I see their point. Let me try to distinguish that for you. That was uh, identical advice that Judge Dalton gave. By really? the way. That exact thing said, when you know you're wrong, but you don't like it, just concede the point, acknowledge this is a prevailing state of law, and you're bound to follow it. I don't like it, but you're bound to follow it. Absolutely. And yeah. then I've even had someone say, um, but I need to make my record. And I would say, you absolutely have a right to make your record because otherwise your appellate attorney is going to get mad at you because you didn't preserve it for hearing. Yes. And they'll look at me like, wow, he understands. <laughs> so our youngest lawyer, um, Krispy Kreme lawyer, uh, brand new, just recently passed the bar. This was his question. What are the most common mistakes you see the younger lawyers make? Um most common mistakes given the amount of lawyers that are coming out in the community now um, and not taking, let's say, the traditional path of going to a larger firm and, you know, learning from, you know, the more experienced lawyers um, would be that they're not working with anybody to try to gain that experience and have a mentor type of relationship with somebody that they can call up or share cases with. Um, you know, mainly because, you know, maybe they're not getting a job offer or whatever, but they hang their own shingle. Um, there's a lot of lawyers out there who have a lot of who have experience and are well known, who would love to have a phone call saying, Hey, would you like to try this case with me? Or Hey, I've got a case, I think it's good. Um, would you like to be co counsel with me, we'll split the fees or whatever, or we'll work the fees out. Um, but I really want to learn from you. And I'd like to do this case with you. That's what I did. I, I started for a couple of years at a bigger firm and learned as much as I could from uh, those folks before I got to the, you know, very antsy that I wanted to start my own law firm. But when I did start my own law firm, it didn't mean I handled cases on my own. Um, that's when I approached people like, you know, Don Myers and Mike Bailey and, um, you know, other people that I started doing cases together with. And um, I learned so much from them. Um, and, I, and it wasn't about the money. Back then, it was about experience. As yeah. far as I was concerned, you know, it's they, priceless. You can't. It's like a fellowship when you work with someone who is that much more experienced. So, so let me ask you this: yeah. related to that, mm -hmm. as somebody who has been a, a mentee, even when you had your own law firm, uh, what advice would you give to folks on how to be a good mentee? In other words, to be someone that a more experienced lawyer wants to work with. 
if they don't, if your mentor is not communicating with you, it's not necessarily because he or she does not care for you or want to spend time with you. They're just really busy because, you know, between kids and vacations and managing a firm and trying cases and family obligations, there's so much going on. Um, so what I would tell people, what I tell people in a lot of, for me, it's a lot of law students. So I always try to make myself available to those people. But, you know, if we just say, okay, let's connect for lunch, it likely won't happen because we're always in that they have to go out of their way to, um, you know, to get on your calendar and also to call your assistant, paralegal, secretary, whoever, you know, your JA and say, hey, what's Judge Weiss's schedule for today? Well, he's in hearings from, you know, nine to 11 in courtroom this. And then a lot of times, um, so one of my, uh, my mentees, um, who is at UF Law School, um, came and visited me the other day because she was on spring break. And she was sitting right there, and she's a great kid. And I was so happy to see her. And so when I came in at 8.30, she was sitting right there, and I was just like, how'd you know I was going to be here? And she goes, well, I called Jill, and we wanted to surprise you. And, um, and she brought me my favorite kind of coffee. And, Come on. Um, Come yeah, on. And so sounds, like and I, a, sounds like a smart woman. Then we, she is. And yes. then we talked for about an hour after my hearings were done. And then by the end of the day, she had a phone number of um, one of Judge Calderon's best friends who actually works in the area of law that she's interested in. That is how you do it. So, so I'm going to restate what I hear you saying, which is one, don't assume that just because a person's busy doesn't mean they, they don't want to invest in your life. They're just busy. Take some initiative with trying to work with their calendar and work with their assistant to get some time on their books. And it doesn't hurt to, you know, be personal. Think, think of something where like the act of, I think of the person being there when you walk in. For me, timeliness is a respect thing for me. Like I hate it when people are late. It drives me nuts. It, so for me, if I'm working with someone, one minute late is like, I don't like it. I, and I don't want to be rigid. It's just for me. And so I, I really appreciate her doing that. And then I also love the, the act of a, a handwritten note. It's like a dead art, you know? I, I, I agree with you. That, that um, is something that I, um, will generally hold on to. Um, and I know a certain judge uh, in our courthouse who um, was the judge when I first started who encouraged me to get letterhead or stationery. And we get it from, I guess there's a jail up north or a prison up north where they have the inmates who actually print this. And it's a business they have and they do a great job. So he gave me that information and that's where I ordered my letterhead. And I said, well, what do you use this for? And he said, you know, and he was telling me some of the re ways he does it. And then he opened up a notebook where he keeps, it's like a scrapbook, all the people who've written him thank you letters. Oh, cool. Over the years. I'm not going to give up his name, but I thought that was really interesting. And he's like, he's like, I don't forget people. If I do not write you a thank you letter, <laughs> I'm a complete failure is what I am. Uh, you can assign it. <laughs> yeah. so, so you've tried, like at least your reputation at the risk of over-disclosing, um, is that you've generally have tried as a judge more cases than the average judge, that you're, you work your docket in a way that um, uh, cases typically get tried that need to get tried, that, that you know, more trials. In, in all the jurors that you talk to, I presume you, you engage with them at some level. Yeah, you have to be careful what you ask, though. And so I always bring my deputy with me. And yeah. generally, it's an open. So how was the trial for you? And um, what, what do you hear in that? Like, like, I, I get the piece about the lawyers being jerks. But like, what are the most common things you hear? <laughs> One of the things that we joke about amongst uh, those of us who've tried cases, uh, judge wise is, and, and it's fairly common is, um, the question is, do you think that, that was the jury affected by the fact that the doctor's making um, $2,000 an hour? So there's a case that's being tried right now where the doctor testified that he makes $2,000 an hour. A lot of the juries, and this has been pretty much consistent amongst my peers um, and my colleagues, um, is the jury believes everybody's making money in that room except for them. <laughs> They're making $15 a day. 
and everybody, uh, you know, the lawyers, everybody looks like they're, you know, wearing these gorgeous suits and, you know, shiny shoes that only they would ever have really for church. Um, they're the ones who couldn't get out of jury duty. They're the ones sitting there. The doctors are making money. The lawyers are making money. The judge makes money. And for some reason, they're there in, in jury duty. And um, so they always make a comment. So I don't know about this whole financial impeachment thing, whether it's as effective as I used to think it was and as everybody think it was. It's definitely effective, but not as I used to th think going into trial, like, oh, they're never going to believe Dr. So-and-so. He makes this. And um, consistently, the jury always comments about that. Um, the first comment that I usually get is about the lawyers, not the plaintiffs or the defendants, but the lawyers. Do you think that sways decisions? Yes. Because I don't want to believe that because it takes some of the pressure off. Yes. I wholeheartedly believe that. And in I think what way? you're telling a story, you are the representative, you are in front of them and have been in front of them for five days from the beginning. The plaintiff only sits there and doesn't really say anything until he or she is called to the stand for what, two hours, maybe that's it. You are their representative, you know, for all intents and purposes. And if they don't like you and you are acting unprofessionally or you are um you know being scolded by the judge um that cannot get for some reason it just doesn't get out of their heads and i'm sure you know if you spoke to a psychologist or something they'll tell you exactly why um but the only thing i've heard about like the plaintiff or the usually the plaintiff is they didn't look hurt and I find that to be a really tough position for a plaintiff because on the one hand, you don't want them putting on an act where they're sitting there going, oh, you know, at the table. But on the other hand, you know, um, how do you get the message across that although my client's sitting here and she may have to get up and down a little bit because her back is hurting so badly, um, she's in pain. So maybe, you know, a question could be, um, you know, ma'am, you've been sitting here this whole trial. Um, are you doing well? No, I'm in pain like I am every day, and I'm using a lot of medication right now, so I'm sorry. And so I think, you know, a lot of people forget about that, that the jury's sitting there looking at you and listening to you as the lawyer, but also staring at a plaintiff for five days. Mm -hmm. And they're used to seeing people in, like, a cast, or they're looking at people in, like, a halo, holding their head up. Um, uh, in an injury-type case having the injured plaintiff who, you know, it really is uncomfortable to sit there all day long, who isn't in the courtroom during the trial. Any feedback on that? I see that cutting both ways, but I think that um, if the um, plaintiff needs a break from the trial, I think a simple instruction to the jury um, is sufficient. Of course, the parties worked that out, and I've had that happen. In fact, two very experienced trial lawyers said, Judge, we've worked out a curative instruction of some sorts that we'd like for you to read to the jury, is that Mrs. Smith, okay? <laughs> so Mrs. Smith um, may be in and out during the trial um, because outside we have comfortable couches, and due to her condition, um, she is um, going to be spending some time um, outside and inside, and please do not infer anything from her either being absent or being at trial or something like that. And I and I just told the parties, I said, I really think that was really professional of you all to come up with that yeah. to, to accommodate the lady. And, um, you know, so I think if, if your client's not going to be there, you know, you need to do something. You got to do it. something. You don't yes. want to point to an empty yes. chair because they'll be like, okay, so we have to sit here and listen to your case while you're over at the mall, you yes. know? <laughs> yes. Um, do you think, just because you've mentioned the suit issue, do you think trial lawyers should intentionally, like, and, and I'm being real, okay, like someone who likes nice suits, should they intentionally be conscious, either side, plaintiff or defense, on uh, being more conservative than the way they would necessarily normally dress in front of a jury? Yes. I hate that. This requires two sets of suits. 
Sorry. I'm just telling you what I think um, and how the jurors think. And, okay, so I am not a big fashion guy. And anybody who knows me who's listening to this. I would never this, say that. Anybody <laughs> who's listening to this would probably crack up because I do not like to go shopping. I don't care, you know, how successful I was as a trial lawyer. I was never known for my very nice suits, although several of my friends would try to kidnap me and take me, um, you know, to get a nice suit. And they'd always give my numbers to those people who call and tell me yes. they'll make me a suit. Um. I think when it comes to how you're going to dress in court, I think um, there are some people on the jury who look at that, look at your shoes, look at the suits, and know exactly, you know, like I've had, I had a juror once say, did you see his Armani, blah, 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 and I'll be like, sorry, I don't look at that stuff. Um, you know, some jurors think like that, but it's also a location thing. I think in Osceola County, for example, some of our jurors, um, you know, would dress much more casually like jeans i've had shorts i've had um you know um so i think maybe you dress to where your location's going to be um maybe um you know it's just a cultural thing i i don't know but i would be careful of wearing a thousand dollar watch um while you're standing in front of the jury somebody could be staring at wow is that a panerai or is that a you know isn't that a something rolex and thinking that well you know if they don't we don't give them a verdict, then, you know, she'll be all right. This attorney's got a Panerai, but they don't realize that that has nothing to do yes. with anything. Yes. And honestly, you know, the what the attorney wears should have nothing to do with anything whatsoever. Yes. But that's left for the psychologist to tell you about why a jury does what they do. But they do comment on the attorney all the time, and they comment on their clothing. I want to focus on uh, advice you would give to two different groups of lawyers. Uh, the first groups, you know, 25 to 35, if you could speak something into them, some battle-tested wisdom, what would it be? Well, it would be at that point of their career that they should really be aiming toward being at the firm um, or starting their own practice that they want to be at as they move ahead to the next stage of their career. So it would be, if you're at a law firm, you want to start talking about partnership, you want to start talking about, you know, buying into the firm and, you know, creating a unique niche for you, whether it be an area of law that you're interested in, that not a lot of people are um, involved in. Um, whether it be, I don't know, inverse condemnation. I don't know. I mean, there's all kinds of specialties. Um, or um, you need to start working on your book of business because what's going to happen is the attorneys who run the firm are going to be like, well, you know, part of it is, yeah, you're a good lawyer, but how are we going to be able to support you if you're not bringing in business? So at that age, you want to start getting involved in boards, whether it be church or synagogue or youth programs or the YMCA or, um, you know, any kind of leadership, because that will get you involved in the community where, you know, how do people find lawyers? You know, they ask around and they, they um, you know, they go to people they trust. Um, so that's an important set of years because you have a certain number of years of experience and you're transitioning into a part where, you know, you really want to be somewhere where you're going to be long term. So if you're going to start your own law firm, you probably have enough experience to do so and some money saved up. That may be the time to do it. Or if you're going to want to stick with the folks that you're with or you want to join a firm like, you know, your law firm or whatever, that's when you approach the firm and say, hey, look, I've got trial experience. I can try cases. And I also sit on these boards and I'm involved in this or that. Or I can, from the defense perspective, you know, I can bring in a book of business. I have friends over at, you know, this um, this firm, um, this insurance firm or whatever. Um, I'm tight with the Allstate people, whatever it may be. You know, that's when you really want to go to the next step, probably the third step of your career. Um, first step being you're out of law school, you know, get a job wherever you can and figure out how to how you're going to learn this stuff. Second step is getting to the next place where, you know, someone's looking for a three to five year lawyer, um, but they're not necessarily looking for a partner. But after, you know, you're hitting 35 years old, almost heading toward 40, you really want to be where you're going to build equity for your future. 
everything from a 401k to um, you know partnership shares in a firm to starting your own firm with someone else or some crew where you know you've moved forward but that's a big transitionary period I think let's talk about a second group um, 45 to say 55 they they're through the first three stages um, they're established, and uh, but they still have plenty of energy and plenty of life ahead of them. You know what I'm saying? They've got they're not the same energy they had when they were 30, but they're still they're ready to truck and and ready to uh, keep working. What advice would you give to that group? I mean, hopefully they're in a place that they're happy. If they're not happy, they need to stop and reevaluate their life and get to a place where. Um, you know, they're really happy about getting up and going to work and feeling like that they're not only needed, but doing something that's meaningful to them. Um, and, you know, for some people, making money is meaningful. To some people, helping others uh, pro bono is meaningful. But whatever it is, um, you know, you're getting to a, to a point where, you know, you really want to be in doing what you're supposed to be doing. You know, when I turn turning 50 now, it's like, I'm thinking like, so this is what I'm supposed to be doing now. Um, and, uh, um, but I think it's really important at that, during that age group that they find meaning to what they're doing. Um, if you're still working for the company that hasn't promoted you or, the law firm that, you know, you've hit that glass ceiling, you know, you may want to look around, maybe an in-house job is good for you, maybe you want to run for judge, maybe um, you want to do a whole nother um, occupation, maybe you want to teach. Um, but there's nothing wrong with not being a lawyer while you have a JD. Um, there's so many options and doors that it opens for you. But, you know, I would think one of the most disappointing things in life, and I'm not there yet, but of course <laughs> would be 15 20 years from now for me to think that you know i really didn't do what i wanted to do and time's running out um that's really good man because that's really good because in the end you know we're all gonna dust to dust and you know um i really sobered up to that fact pretty quickly of our own mortality and um i want to be able to say you know, I want my last words to be, you know, I did what I did um, and I'm happy I made those decisions and I think I made a difference in this world. And, you know, whatever's next, I hope that, you know, I've left a legacy. And I think, you know, the, that, that age group you're talking about, that's when you really, you know, especially after 50, you know, that's, I think, where you start to self-reflect and say, okay, you know, you know, I really love my job and love what I'm doing, or I'm absolutely miserable. I need to do something else because no amount of money can buy happiness. I can tell you that much. And too many people think that, you know, I, you know, if I make a million dollars then I'm going to be happy. No, that's not true. When you make a million dollars, you're going to want to make two. And then when you make two, you're going to want to make three. And then I mean, it just doesn't buy happiness. There's so much truth in what you're saying. There really is. I'm glad I learned those lessons early on. I'm sure I'm going to learn more lessons as I go forward. But, um, you know, I peaked kind of young. Um, you know, I was Your in my 30s. I was in my 30s making, <laughs> making more money than, you know, my, you know, many of my peers and my family ever had. Your life cycle is slightly different. Um, if you had a magic wand and you could wave it and fix anything in the world, any problem, any issue, any, if you could just wave a magic wand and you could fix one problem in the whole world, what would it be? Peace, love, and understanding. That's all I keep thinking of is Elvis Costello's song, Peace, Love, and Understanding. What's so wrong about peace, love, and understanding? that we respect each other and our differences and our diversity and that we look at each other as human beings and respect so long as no one's harming somebody else and harming you that if somebody you know believes in this or that um, that we respect that and that we love them as our fellow human beings and that we understand and have empathy for them. And I think if we all stay out of each other's business and respect each other, 
I think it would be a much better world. Yes, that's great. Well, uh, Judge Weiss, I can't tell you how thankful I am. Uh, loaded with nuggets, I leave uh, uh, encouraged to not get in the uh, pit of mud and get muddy, and uh, also to just keep uh, dialing in to purpose and mission and being sure that every day I'm trying to do something that that. Uh, makes me feel accomplished. I, I know there's lots of good stuff. Thank you. Thank you, David. Well, that was uh, a lot of fun for me. I hope you got some good uh, nuggets out of that. I really love uh, Judge Weiss's perspective on uh, what a trial judge's experience is like. All of the different topics and all of the different hearings and all of the different experiences, it helped remind me to speak with greater clarity. I also really appreciated uh, his view on mentorship and his perspective on jurors who just do not like lawyers fighting. Um, I thought that was an interesting uh, concept and I, I appreciated that. Uh, again, I want to say thank you for all the feedback. It is really helpful. If you've got uh, people that you'd love for me to talk to, uh, please send me an email at dave at pkblawfirm.com. And uh, I would appreciate that. Any constructive criticisms uh, have at it or positive encouragements, I'll take those too. I look forward to the next one. Thanks. Thanks.